Second Kings, Second Kings chapter six. Second Kings chapter six. I'm going to pray for us here in just a moment. But Second Kings chapter six is going to be our starting place. Let's pause and ask God to bless our time in His Word tonight. Lord Jesus, you said that apart from you, we can do nothing. And we know that apart from your grace, your work in our midst, that this time will be meaningless and empty. But Father, I pray that as we study your word, you would move in our midst by your power, Lord, by your spirit, and that you would take your word and apply it to our hearts and do a mighty, mighty work in our lives. I pray that we would be challenged. I pray that we would be encouraged. I pray that we would be equipped. I pray that we would be edified. I pray that you would build up this church for the glory of your great name. So, Lord, I pray that you would just have your hand upon this time. And not only upon what we're doing in this room, but, God, I pray you'd have your hand upon all the ministries of Longview Point tonight, Father. Student ministry and children's ministry and preschool ministry and our worship choir and the men's and women's discipleship groups. God, would you just, would you just move tonight and would we leave this place knowing that we have been at your house and knowing that we have been in your presence. And we'll thank you, Lord, for that, that amazing grace. And we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to talk to you tonight about good news. We're going to see a passage which is all about good news. It's a really powerful story we're going to study tonight. And, and this story revolves around Elisha, who happens to be a key player in this story. Now, before we get into the specifics of this story concerning Elisha, I want to just share a few thoughts with you. Uh, when it comes to the United States of America, and it comes to Christianity, it comes to the spread of Christianity in America, we are statistically losing our nation. When we look at the generation, starting with the, the baby boomers and every successive generation, the percent of that generation that are born again, professed followers of Christ gets lower and lower and lower and lower and lower. So every generation that comes along in our nation has a, a, a lower percentage of professed followers of Jesus Christ. That's problematic, right? Because eventually the older generation, uh, generations with a higher percentage of Christians are going to step into eternity. And that means that that these younger generations aren't going to have as many Christians in them, and eventually uh, the, the balance shifts in, in our nation in terms, of, in terms of a focus upon the one true God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And not only are we losing our nation, but statistically we're not even reaching our own children in, in, in the church. When it comes to those who are in the church of Jesus Christ, statistically we're not even reaching our own children like we should. Uh, and so I want you to understand, as we think about that, and that's kind of bad news. We're starting kind of on a downer tonight. We think about our nation, think about our families, think about what's happening all around us. I want you to understand, here's the good news. We have a tried and true plan to dramatically change the course of our nation. And a tried and true plan to dramatically change the course of our families. You know what the plan is? It's called the Great Commission. Jesus told us what to do, and he showed us how to do it. Over in... Matthew chapter 28, the last chapter of the book of Matthew, Jesus said, Here are your marching orders. Go and make disciples of all the nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's how you change the world. That's how you change your family. That's, that's how you change your community. That's how you change your nation. You, you, you make disciples. You share with people Jesus, the good news about Jesus, so they can hear it and receive it and become followers of Christ. Then you teach them how to grow so they can in turn reach out with that same good news. That's, that's what... The plan is, the plan that Jesus Christ has given us. But, I want you to hear me. If we're going to fulfill the Great Commission, if this is going to happen, if we're going to be a, a disciple-making church, if we're going to reach our community and reach our nation, eventually, someone somewhere is going to have to open up their mouth and talk about Jesus. Right? I mean, we're not going to make disciples. We're not going to introduce people to, to Christ and, and, and lead people to a place where they say, I want to follow Jesus, if we don't open up our mouths and talk about Jesus. If we don't share the good news that we have received. So here's what I want you to understand at the front end of this Bible study tonight. One of the greatest privileges we have, this is in your notes, one of the greatest privileges we have is to share the good news actually open up our mouths and share the good news that changed our life. Now, just before we get into this text, I want to just kind of define good news, because we hear that term. The good news is a, is a translation, the phrase good news is a translation of the word the Bible uses, gospel. If you ever see the word gospel in the New Testament, it's, the word, it's a word that means good news. It's euangelion. It was a word that was used in the first century of, of proclaiming uh, a, a victory uh, over a, a foreign invader. It was a, a, a word used to herald good tidings, euangelion. So when we see the word gospel, it means good news. So the gospel is good news, which leads me to this question. This is where we need to get it right. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? Now, if we did a man-on-the-street interview like you know Jay Leno does or someone like that, and we asked... You know, 50 people what the gospel is, we might get about 50 different answers, right? There, there's, some, there's some confusion over what the gospel actually is, which is unfortunate because the Bible clearly defines it. Do you want to know what the gospel is? you want to know how the Bible defines it? Well, there are two aspects of the gospel. The first is the historical event. Turn to, turn to 1 Corinthians 15 with me. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. So the first part of the gospel is the historical event. Something happened in human history that is good news for us. Okay? What happened in human history which is such good news for you and for me? Well, look what it says, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writing to the church in Corinth, he writes, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel, that's the word good news, euangelion, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance. So he's saying this gospel, this good news, was the most important thing I could share with you. It is a matter of first There's nothing more important than the gospel. I had... 
someone in my office one time, and I think I talked about this at the men's breakfast this past week, but I saw someone in my office one time, and he was telling me how different churches had different things. And different pastors had different things. Like, over this church, this pastor, this is his thing. And this pastor, this is his thing. And over here, this, this pastor, this is his thing. Like all, all these pastors had different things. And the church had different things. Listen, the thing we should all be about is the gospel. <laughs> I mean, it's the matter of first importance. It is the most important thing. So if your thing is something other than the gospel, you may be missing what the Bible prioritizes as of first importance. And it says there, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here's what it is. Here's the gospel. He's going to define it for us. He's going to lay it out. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So that's the gospel. Something happened in human history that's really, really good news. Jesus, the Son of God, left heaven, came to earth, took on human flesh lived a perfect life, he fulfilled the law perfectly, he lived the life we could not live, and then he, of his own volition, went to the cross and died for us. He died for our sins. He, the Bible says he became sin. It means he took all of our sin on himself, and then on the cross, he took the punishment from his Father, God the Father, that we deserve. That's what it means when it says he died for our sins. He took the wrath of God in our place. That's called the substitutionary atonement of Christ. That's what the cross was all about. He was dying for our sins. We're guilty. We deserve the wrath. We deserve the punishment. But Jesus took it in our place. And then, after he died on the cross, he was taken off the cross. He was buried. And according to this, in human history, early on the third day, Jesus walked out of his tomb, or out of the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. He walked out of the tomb. He walked out of the grave. He defeated death itself. And so listen, in human history, Jesus died and he rose from the dead. The cross is the supreme demonstration of the love of God. If you ever wonder if if God loves you, look to the cross. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The cross is the demonstration, the proof that God loves us, right? And the empty tomb, the resurrection, is the supreme demonstration of the power of Jesus to save. How can a dead man give eternal life? Right? And and if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, he was not who he said he was. He was a fraud. But he did rise from the dead. He defeated death itself. And he is alive today, and he's mighty to save. That's the historical event. And so listen, here's the gospel. The gospel is... Not do better. Improve yourself. Fix your life. That's not good news. Because that would mean that our, our renovation, our salvation is up to us. And get, listen, you don't want that. You don't want your salvation to be up to you. You know why? Because you're not perfect and I'm not either. If our salvation was up to us, we would have to be perfect. Any takers for that in this room? Any takers on that? But you see, the good news is not improve yourself. The good news is something happened in human history that offers you forgiveness for your sins. And you don't trust yourself. You don't try to save yourself. You trust in what Jesus did for you. You trust in the finished work of Christ. So there's there's the historical event, the, the death, 
burial, resurrection of Christ. That's the first part of the gospel. The second part is the personal response. Okay? You have the historical event, but listen to me. I want you to be clear on this. Knowing that Jesus died on the cross and knowing that Jesus rose from the dead does not save you. There's a lot of people that know everything I just said, but they are headed for hell right now. Salvation is not knowing the right things in your mind, is it? You've got to respond to what Jesus did for you. So how do you respond? Well, turn to Acts chapter 20 with me. Let me show you how Paul told people to respond. Look at Acts chapter 20, verse 18. This is Paul speaking to the leaders of the church in Ephesus. We'll get to Elisha in a minute. Just hang with me, all right? He says there, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the response, the proper response to the gospel, faith and repentance. That's it. So you've got to know the good news that Jesus died for you and that he rose from the dead. Then you've got to respond. Repentance means you say, I, I, I'm going the wrong direction. You know, to be saved, you've got to understand that, that, you, that you can't save yourself. You've got to understand you're a sinner, Right? The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you've got to say, I don't want to go down this path anymore. I, I, want, to, I want to follow Jesus. I want to go in a new direction. So repentance means you, you turn. It's a U-turn. And faith means it's a, a trusting in Jesus and what he did on your behalf. Faith is recognition you cannot save yourself. Faith is saying, my only hope is Jesus. So based upon that, I want to follow him. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. I choose to follow Jesus Christ. And so the gospel has two parts, the good news, the historical event, death, burial, resurrection of Christ, and the personal response, faith and repentance. That's the gospel, all right? That's what the good news is, that we can be saved, sinners can be saved, if they'll hear that good news about what Jesus has done, turn from their sins and repentance, and place their faith in Jesus Christ. So, back to my original statement. One of the great privileges we have is to share that good news. All that I just shared with you, one of the great privileges we have is to share that, to herald that, to proclaim that, to let people know that, that don't know that. That's what I want to talk to you about tonight. There's a wonderful illustration that really challenges us as to our obligation to share good news. And it revolves, again, around the man of God, Elisha. Now, just a little bit of, of background. We studied, first of all, the life of Elijah, who was a prophet to the northern kingdom after Israel uh, went into a time of civil war. And Elijah was used by God to preach uh, messages of truth and, and judgment and righteousness to the evil kings uh, who ruled that land. And after Elijah was taken to heaven by God, Elisha, his protege, uh, was the one raised up to continue that role, to perform miracles, to get people's attention, and to preach truth to that nation and to the nation's leaders. And we've been looking at Elisha's life and the different miracles that God performed through him and the wonderful things that God did through him. But now we're going to see him as a central figure in a really interesting story. So what I want to do tonight is I want to walk through this story, and there are really 
five different stages of the story, five acts, if you will, to this story. And I'm going to just kind of walk you through it. We're going to read Scripture as we go. It's a long passage. We're going to break the reading down as we go. And we're going to begin by discussing the desperate situation. We find that the nation of Israel is in a desperate situation. Look with me in 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. Verse 24. The Bible says, Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. That's the northern kingdom of Israel. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help, help my lord, O king. And he said, If the lord will not help you, how shall I help you, from the threshing floor or from the wine press? And the king asked her, What is your trouble? She answered, This woman said to me, Give me your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So he boiled my son and ate him, and on the next day I said to her, Give your son that we may eat him, but she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he's passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, the, he had sackcloth beneath on his body, and he, and he said, May God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. So the king is, is leading his people through a time of great famine, the, or a great siege. The Syrians had surrounded the city in Samaria and were not allowing food to come into the city, so they didn't have anything to eat. They're buying dove's dung to eat, and they're even resorting to cannibalism to survive. That's how desperate the situation has gotten. And the king blames this on Elisha. Now, why do you think the king blames Elisha for this siege, for this, uh, this, this famine that they were experiencing? Well, some believe that he felt it was the judgment of God against them, and Elisha was God's representative. So he was mad at God, and if you're going to be mad at God, you're going to be mad at the man that stands for God, right? Jesus said, if, if people hate me, they're going to hate you too for following me. So maybe just Elisha was God's man, and he hated God, hated God so he hated Elisha. Perhaps... He felt Elisha had the power to stop the situation. Elisha, you could intervene and stop all this, but you won't do it. Or maybe he was mad because if you remember back earlier in chapter 6, we studied this last week, Elisha had told the king to let the Syrians go when they had them trapped and could have destroyed the army. But he said, let them go, kill them with kindness, and they let them go. So maybe he was mad about that. We don't know why he's mad at Elisha, but he's mad at Elisha. And we see here a desperate situation. People are dying. The clock is ticking. There's, there's no hope in this city as they're surrounded by the Syrian army. If you go out, the Syrians will kill you. If you stay in, you'll die of starvation. Desperate situation. Now, this desperate situation could serve as a picture for people's lives today. This desperate situation could serve as a picture for people's lives today. Did you know that people in this world that are without Jesus, are in a very similar situation. In other words, they are separated from God, and, the time, and, the, and time is ticking. Time is ticking. You see, every one of us have an appointment with death. Right? Every one of us. The Bible says it's appointed for a man to die once. After this comes judgment. Every one of us ha has that appointment. And I don't know when it's going to be for me. I don't know when it's going to be for you. But I know we're one day closer than we were yesterday. Right? And if you don't know Jesus, 
and you step into eternity not knowing Him, not having your sins forgiven, you stand before the judge, you are in, you are in for eternal judgment and separation from God in that awful place called hell. That's, that's pretty serious, isn't it? The clock is ticking. Just like here in the city. They're in a, a, a desperate situation. The clock was ticking. And they felt hopeless and in despair. Everyone is running out of time. Their death is approaching. Just like the folks in this city. So we see here the, the desperate situation. But secondly, I want to show you the declaration of the prophet. The declaration of the prophet. What does Elisha have to say about all this? The king's blaming him. So what's the man of God going to say? Well, look what it says there in Chapter 6, verse 32. Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. It's not the sound of his master's feet behind him. And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? And so the king sends a messenger to Elisha, and Elisha knows what's up. The king wants to kill Elisha. And so Elisha understands that the king wants to destroy him. So look what happens in chapter 7, verse 1. But Elisha said... Now Elisha's about to declare two things. First of all, Elisha declared a message of salvation. Look what it says in verse 1. Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time a sayah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel. It'll be cheap. And two sayahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of... Of Samaria. In other words, what Elisha is saying is deliverance is coming. Tomorrow, food won't be so expensive. It will be plentiful. It will be in abundance. In other words, what he's saying is this. Salvation is coming to the city. It's a declaration of good news. This, this time tomorrow, prices will go down. There will be plenty. It would almost be like someone standing up in our, in our room this, this evening and saying, tomorrow gas will be 80 cents per gallon. Miracle, right? That's what he's saying. Food's going to be a lot cheaper tomorrow because deliverance is coming. And so he declares this message of salvation, but he also declares a message of judgment. Look what he says in verse 2. The captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. So he's saying... You won't participate in this because you don't believe God's word and you are against God. You are for the king who is an enemy of God. And so you need to understand that judgment is coming. We're going to see a little bit later. Judgment comes uh, for, this, uh, for this man. And so Elijah, I want you to listen to me very carefully. Elijah tells the entire story. There's salvation for some and judgment for others. And that's important because in our culture today, sometimes people want to tell just one side of the story. Have you ever heard someone say, I believe that God's a God of love. He would never send someone to hell. You ever heard someone say that? I hear it all the time. God's God, he would never send someone to hell. Now, is God a God of love? Absolutely. But if you rebel against him and don't receive the one way of salvation, the one way of forgiveness, which is through his son, Jesus Christ, then you will experience his wrath forever and ever in that awful place called hell. he's, He's shown us the way to be saved. And he loves us enough to offer us that way. But if we reject his one way to be saved, we can experience judgment because he is a God who is holy and sin must be punished. So we've got to be careful as we share the good news 
that we give folks the complete picture of God. Not just one side, God is love, but tell them the truth. If you reject the Lord, destruction is coming. Wrath is coming. Hell is coming. Eternal separation from God is coming if you reject the Lord. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So if we only tell tell people God is love, we're not telling them the full truth. We're withholding part of the story. And if they're making their decisions based upon us sharing just half of the story or the wrong aspect of, uh, or the wrong teaching of who God is, then we are, we are accomplices in them going to hell. Right? If we don't tell them the truth. If we don't tell them the truth. If we're not going to tell folks the truth, then what are we doing? What are we doing? And so, I love what Elisha does here. He declares the truth. Salvation, and there will be judgment for those that don't, that don't follow the Lord, that those don't, don't receive what he says. There will be be judgment. That's the declaration of the prophet. But third, we see the decision of the lepers. Now the scene shifts from Elisha, the man of God, to these four lepers. And it gets real interesting here. Look what it says in chapter 7, verse 3. The Bible says, now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. Now leprosy is, is an awful disease. It in this day and time, they isolated lepers. You could not be involved with, with society. You had to be isolated away from everyone else. And it was a, a disease that, that uh, turned your skin uh, uh, very, very white and caused deformities and other things. And it was just a, a terrible disease that, that isolated you from the rest of society. So there's these four men who were lepers, the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? Here we are, we can't eat because there's no food. There's the Syrian army out there. And so we can sit here and die or we can do something. So look what they say. Why are we sitting here till we die? If we say let us enter the city, the famine is in the city and we shall die there. If we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. If they kill us, we shall but die. And so they're reasoning here. Why do we sit here until we die? In other words, we've got to do something. Now listen to me. It would, have been, it would have been crazy for these four lepers in the midst of this siege, in the midst of this desperation to just do nothing. Right? Would you, would you agree that for them just to sit at the gate and die would have, been, would have been crazy? I mean, try something, right? Do something. Try, see, what, see what happens if you just try something. But you know what these lepers remind me of? If they would have chosen to stay at the gate and just die, if they would have, if they would have chosen to be inactive, they remind me of the church in a large, to a large degree. When we're in the midst of such de- desperation, wouldn't it be crazy for us just to do nothing? Just to show up at church and have our little church services and go home and do our thing and come back and say hey to everybody and then go home and do our... I mean, wouldn't it be crazy for us just to be inactive and not engaged in doing something about the desperation that's all around us? It would. But these lepers give us an example of action. They, they do something. The lepers decided to take a risk. To leave inactivity behind is to take a risk. That's what these lepers do. They take a risk. And, and here's what I believe has happened in, in the church today. We, we've learned to do Christianity without risking anything. 
If you look there in your notes, we've learned to minimize risk and be comfortable. Would you agree with that statement? We've learned to do Christianity and be seen as fine, upstanding citizens and good church members when our Christianity cost us nothing. No risk. No diligence serving the Lord. No stepping out in faith. No leaving comfort zone. We're just kind of doing our thing. And we, we, have, we have developed a Christianity in America that cost us nothing. Right? And when you look at the Bible, there's a very different picture of what it means to follow Christ. It costs something, right? So could it be we're not fully following Christ? Could it be we are languishing in inactivity instead of stepping out to risk something in the midst of the desperation we find ourselves in? So we see the decision of the lepers. They decided to, to say, we can't just sit here till we die. Listen, church. In the midst of a a nation that we're losing, in the midst of so many people dying and going to hell in our nation and all around the world, in the midst of billions of people that have never heard the name of Jesus, we cannot just sit here. Right? We can't just sit here. We've got to do something. And so we come to the next act of this story. We see the deliverance of God. Look what it says there in verse 5. says, well, back in verse 4, it says, they arose, I'm sorry, verse 5. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they come to the edge of the, came to the, edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. Why? For the Lord, who? The Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. Supernatural deliverance from God, right? God shows up to frighten the Syrian army. So they, they flee and leave all their stuff behind, supplies for the starving city, and they go home, no threat from the, from the army of the Syrians. Awesome. Now, as I studied this, I saw something I haven't seen before. I haven't thought of it in this ter- these terms before. You remember over in chapter 6 when the Syrians surrounded the city that Elisha was in with his servant? Remember that story? And the servant says, we're about to die. There's two of us. You're a preacher. And that's an army. And they've got us surrounded. And you remember what Elisha does? He says, Lord, open his eyes. And the Lord allows, we talked about this last week, the Lord allows the servant of Elisha to see the angel army of God surrounding the valley. And he sees chariots and horses of fire. And the servant says, oh, I get it. We're on the winning team. So in that chapter, the Lord opens the servant's eyes to see the angelic army of God. I believe what happens here in this chapter is God opens their ears to hear the angelic army of God. He he allows the servants to hear his mighty host coming to battle for his people. They hear it, and it strikes terror in their lives. They hear, listen, they hear what's going on in the supernatural realm. And they realize, based on what we hear, we're outnumbered. And they were terrified because they just left without grabbing any supplies. So God 
miraculously intervenes to, to save his people. The power of God came against the Syrians and they fled. God supernaturally intervened to save his people from their desperate plight. Now, does that sound familiar? Listen to me. God supernaturally intervening to save people from desperation? Does that sound familiar? You know what? That's my story. God supernaturally intervened in my life to save me from desperation. My desperation was I was lost, a sinner who had rebelled against God. I was far from God in my sins, headed to that awful place called hell. But I, I heard the good news. God sent His Son to step into human history, take on human flesh, die on the cross, supernaturally rise from the dead to provide a way for me to be saved. And then God allowed me to hear the gospel. He drew my heart to himself. And at nine years of age, I prayed to to the Lord. I asked Jesus to save me. And at nine years of age, God intervened to save me from my desperate plight. And if you know the Lord, he did the same thing for you. He, He delivered you spiritually just like he delivered the Israelites Physically in this passage. It's a beautiful picture of of deliverance. A a beautiful picture of of salvation. A a beautiful picture of God just intervening and and intersecting your life. And that's what he did for you if you know the Lord. God supernaturally intervened in our desperate situation to provide deliverance from sin. And that's so important. I shared this illustration uh, several months ago. But I want to bank on the fact that you don't remember it. And that some of you weren't here when I shared it. So it's, it's a great story. It's a story that happened in the early 70s. And it's a story about two Royal Navy submariners. One's name was Roger Chapman. The other was named Roger Mallinson. And they were doing some work laying some cable at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. And they were being towed by cables back up to the surface to be hitched to a boat and go back in uh, from the work day. And while they were being towed, a hatch busted loose, and water filled up that hatch, and it took on so much water weight that the sub broke loose from the towing cables and plunged to the bottom of the dark, icy Atlantic Ocean. When they get to the bottom, they crash. They have no power. They have no instrument display. They have no responsiveness from their craft. They're just down there, unable to do anything about their situation, unable to do a thing. They were, listen, 1,575 feet below the surface of the water. 1,575 feet. And they had oxygen, but their oxygen supply was running out. Now, at the top of the water, top of the Atlantic, a massive rescue operation began. And this operation took 76 hours, and it was international. They brought people in from all different nations, and they got different crafts together. And, and through the, their ingenuity, they were able to attach the right kind of cables and pull this sub back up to the surface. And they finally got it back up to the surface and opened the hatch. Those two men had 12 minutes of oxygen left. That's how close it was to them perishing. And I read that story. And I thought, that's all of us. We are in a desperate situation, far, far from God, listen, and unable to do anything about it. Our only hope is that God would send a rescuer to come and lift us out of our sin and lift us from our desperate plight and save us. And Jesus is 
that rescuer, right? That's what the gospel is. Jesus has come to be your rescuer. Take his hand. He'll save you. He'll forgive you. He'll lift you out of your sin and change your life. So we see here the deliverance of God, and we could talk a lot more about that. But let me go to the fifth thing. There's the dilemma of the saved. The dilemma of the saved. And here's where it gets really, really interesting, and for us in this room, really, really convicting. Really challenging. Look what happens in verse 9. Then they, the lepers, said to one another, We are not doing right. What are they doing? They're in the camp eating food, right? They're gorging themselves. Look what they say. This day is a day of, what's it say? Good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, We came to the camp of the Syrians. Behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents that they were. The gatekeepers called out and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the, what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry, therefore they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. And one of his servants said, Let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. They were hungry. They were eating dove's dung and resorting to cannibalism. And they go to the camp and there's food. A say of fine flour was sold for a shekel, just like Elisha said, and two sayas of barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. So what happens here? These lepers go to the Syrian camp. God had caused them to flee. And the lepers experienced the blessings of God. And they decided to share the good news. And here's the thought process they went through. It's wrong not to share the good news. This is good stuff. We should tell somebody. And they said, we'll be held responsible. If, if, if people find out we knew this and we didn't tell them, we will be held accountable. And then they decided to go. And they went and shared the good news. Now, I would submit to you tonight that the church needs to go through the same line of reasoning that the lepers went through. If you are saved, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior tonight, you are experiencing the blessings of God. Right? And just, just go read Ephesians chapter 1. It talks about all the blessings that are found in Christ. You've been forgiven. You've been redeemed. You've been set free. You've been adopted. Now you can call God Father. You were once an enemy of God, but now that your sins have been forgiven by Jesus, you are now a friend of God and a child of God. You can call Him Father. We could go on and on. All the blessings that are ours in Christ. If we are saved, we experience the blessings of God. Just like the lepers experience the blessings of deliverance from the Syrian army. And just like the lepers, we need to come to this conclusion. This is in your notes. It's wrong, morally wrong, not to share the good news. It's wrong not to share the good news. If, if, uh, if you were able to discover the, the, the cure for some disease and you didn't share it with the, with the public, I would say that would be morally reprehensible. Wouldn't you? I mean, if you had 
if you had a, a, a remedy, a cure that could save people's lives and you didn't share it, I mean, how evil would that be, right? But is it, is it any different when we don't share the good news? Is it any different when we have a message that will change people's lives and their eternity and we don't share it? Could it be that that's morally reprehensible too? What do you think? It's wrong not to share the good news. The lepers came to that conclusion. We need to come to that conclusion. And listen, just like the lepers understood, they would be held responsible. We will be held responsible. The Bible does not say that there won't be tears in heaven. The Bible says that he will wipe away our tears. Right? So there will be tears. I wonder if, if part of that will be tears of regret. When we look back over our life and we see the impact we could have made, and, and we had this wonderful, wonderful news, and we just stayed silent. We just stayed silent. I've already got some of those regrets. You know, uh, I, I think about high school, and I think about some of the friendships I had in high school, and I had people in high school that, that they would sit and listen to me talk for three hours about whatever. I mean, anything. You had friends like that too. And I was a believer in Christ. I was saved when I was nine years old, a group in church. I, was never, I wasn't ever really challenged to share my faith. I just thought, you know, being a Christian means you just go to church. That's what you do. But you don't really share that with anybody. And matter of fact, we, we had certain... Uh, certain family members, and we would say as a family, before we went to that family, we would say, okay, no talk on politics or religion. It'll just get, it'll just get ugly, because they believe different than we do, and so let's get around, let's just, don't, let's just don't go there. Okay? We just don't bring it up. And so, you know, I just largely kept my faith private growing up, and I look back now, I thought, man, as a, as a teenager, a bunch of knuckleheaded teenagers around me. I could have, I, I could I could have just, I could have talked to them for hours about Jesus, and they would have listened to me, and maybe responded. I think that was wasted opportunity. I'll tell you another one. I was, uh, I was uh, home uh, in Florida visiting over Christmas. This was several years ago, and uh, a childhood friend of mine who grew up down the road from me. We live way out in the woods on dirt road, and he was, he was in town seeing his parents as well, and he was out walking the dog. And I was out in my driveway, and he came up, and, and, and his name was David. And Dave and I talked, and, you know, we just conversed, just kind of, just kind of surface kind of stuff. How you doing? Good. How you doing? He was living in Atlanta. We talked about that. I told him I was living in Mississippi. We talked about that. And we kind of just made kind of surface small talk. And, and he told me he had not been feeling well, that he'd been, he'd been really, really sick. And so, you know, we said, you know, we'll see you around this, this week. And I said bye, and, and he said bye, and I didn't really see him again. Uh, he was with his family. I was with my family. And then just a few weeks later, we find out that David died. And, 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 and to be honest with you, I, during that conversation, I thought, you know, I would just, it'd be a good time to talk to him about where he is with the Lord. But, you know, it's, you know, I need to get inside. And, you know, and so I regret not ever talking to him about the Lord. I don't know where he was with the Lord, but I know that I had opportunity in those moments, just me and him standing there in my driveway in my parents' house. It was an, it was an opportunity to share the gospel. And I regret that. I regret that. And so, I don't want to stand before God one day with a, with a longer list of regrets. I don't want to 
stand before God and say, it, it's really good news. It really is. But I didn't tell anybody. I didn't, I didn't share that. It's either good news or it's not. And if it's good news, it needs to be shared. I was convicted um, about my grandparents. My, my grandparents were not, as far as we knew, believers in Christ. And, and I never really shared with them, never had that opportunity. And, or I, didn't, I didn't take the opportunity to share with them. And, and you know, we didn't want to talk about uncomfortable things around them. And, and, and they live around the Orlando area. And I went to the Southern Baptist Convention in Orlando. This has been, I don't know, three, four years ago. And I was at the convention, it was awesome, you know, hear all these great preachers, and you're singing all these great songs, and I got back in uh, my, 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 my minivan, and family was down there, and, and they were up with their, with Claire's parents, but I was at the convention by myself, and, and uh, I was in my minivan, and I put on a song we'd been singing that week at the convention, it's the song, Stronger, You Are Stronger, Sin Is Broken, You Have Saved Me, and I remember I was driving the, the interstate, just about 30 minutes from my grandparents, and I was just singing that song, oh, it's so good to be saved, and man, what a great week, and the music, and the preaching, and man, it was awesome, and I was just on the spiritual high, and it's like the Lord just gripped my heart. I said, all this you're experiencing right now, what about your grandparents, Wade? What about them? See what I did? At that moment, I called up my grandparents. I said, and they were in. They were, they, you know, they're busy folks. And they were, then I said, Grandma, Grandma, I, I, this is Wade. I'm, I'm in town before I go back to North Florida and, and get my family. Uh, you know, I, was, I was just come by, I want to come by and, and see you for a few minutes. And they said, that'd be fine. And so I came by and we sat in their living room. And I just told them, I said, Grandma, Grandpa, there's some things I haven't shared with you that I need to share with you. And I just, as clearly as I knew, I just walked them through the good news and challenged them to follow Christ and receive him as their Lord and Savior, and told them I loved them. And there were tears, and, 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 and it, there were some tense moments, and, and, and it was difficult, and I can't tell you where they are spiritually now. They've, they've, they've joined a church, I, you know, but, I, but, but, but I, I was able to share the gospel with them. And, and, and I knew that if I didn't do it at that moment, I was being directly disobedient. It's either good news or it's not. And for me to sing in my van how strong God is and how mighty He is to save and how wonderful it is to know Jesus and be 30 minutes from my grandparents and not go tell them, it just doesn't add up, does it? So I'm telling you all that to say, hey, I've blown it some. I, I've forgotten in my life, in my past, just how good the good news is. Have you? We can do better. We can do better. We've got to come that, go through that same line of reasoning. Christians have experienced blessings of God. It's wrong not to share the good news. We will be held responsible. We must go. We must go. Just like the, the leper. We've got to go back and tell folks. We must go and share the good news of God's deliverance through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to get real practical with you for a minute. And I'm going to close down and, and then give you a chance to ask questions. But you see there, there's a formula. Everybody see that at the bottom of your page? HP plus CP plus CC equals MI. Everyone see that? A little math tonight, that'll bless you, right? This, this formula is not original with me. As a matter of fact, I got it from Bill Hybels when I read a book by him years ago called Becoming a Contagious Christian. Great little book about sharing your faith. And in that, that book, he gives this formula. And here's what the formula stands for it's in bullet points underneath, the, uh, underneath those letters. HP stands for high potency. High potency. 
By high potency, he means we should exhibit an authentic Christian life. Our lives should be potent. They should, they should have, some, they should have some, some, some vigor, some, some energy, some excitement. Some, in other words, people should see Jesus changing our life. Our lives should be a message of how Jesus can change folks. Right? We, we, we're, to, we're to show people through our lives the difference Jesus makes in marriage, on the job, in your recreation, in your church. We're, we're, our, our lives are to display this, this high potency, exhibiting an authentic Christian life. Doesn't mean you're perfect. Doesn't mean you're perfect. As a matter of fact, a well-placed, I'm sorry, I was wrong, can have a lot more impact than you acting like you're perfect all the time. Right? You, you offend somebody at work, you come to them and say, I was wrong, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? That can, that can speak volumes to folks. You're not perfect, but, but you've been forgiven, and Jesus is working in you, and he's changing you, he's making a difference in you, you don't do the things everyone else does, you don't talk the way everyone else does, you don't involve yourselves in the things everyone else does, you are, are being changed by Christ, and your life is a, is a letter that people can read. High potency. And we need that, don't we? I mean, to go out in our, in our lives and just live like people that have been set on fire by Jesus. High potency. Number two, close proximity. By that he means we, sh- we are to be friends with lost people. Close proximity means we are to be friends with lost people. Jesus was a friend of sinners, right? Friend of sinners. You'll never be able to, to share good news if you're never around someone that needs to hear it. Right? You're never around folks that, that, that need to know that Jesus died for them and rose from the dead. And so close proximity is important. We've got to, we've got to learn to, to be friends with lost people. But here, here's what researchers are finding out and just people just through their normal routine of, of being a Christian are finding out. And you'll find this to be true as well. We're finding out that the longer someone is a Christian, the more insulated from lost people they get. They get, you know, they get a, you get in church and they get some Christian friends and, and Christian, you know, Christian couple friends and get to know some folks and they're, they're really involved in church activities and, and all that's good. We need that encouragement. We need the, the community. I preached on it Sunday morning. We need the community to encourage us and to equip us and to challenge us and hold us accountable but if, if, we're, if we're insulated away from lost people, maybe we need to think a minute about our calling, about what Jesus did. He was a friend of sinners. So close proximity. Now, you've got to be careful here. It doesn't mean that you involve yourselves with, with the activities that lost people involve themselves in. It, it just means that you are, are, are in relationship with them, you're a friend to them, so you can influence them more than they influence you. Right? Lost people. Close proximity means that we are to be friends with lost people. Let me challenge you to do something. We're in the end of this week, beginning of next week, let's just say through the end of January. Pray every day. Say, God, would you, would you bring someone into my life today with whom I can share Christ? And just see how God may answer that prayer. And tell me. Tell me about it. Tell me what happens when you pray that prayer consistently. And not only pray, but you're on the lookout. Close proximity. Number three, clear communication. 
Clear communication means that we need to be able to share a simple gospel message and our personal testimony. Clear communication means we need to be able to share a simple gospel message and our personal testimony. I, I've been through I've been through all sorts of evangelism training courses. I mean, you name it. I've I've been through it or been exposed to it in some way, shape, or form. And you know, I could tell you the tenets of you know um, faith or EE or you know there's the um, CWT years and years. anybody here go through CWT? Wow, that's impressive. Uh, that, that's way back. People sharing Jesus, share Jesus without fear. I mean, you name it. There are all these evangel- uh, two ways to live. There are all these different evangelistic approaches that, that equip people to share their faith. And, and what I'm saying to you is this. There's no excuse for us not having some kind of way to share the good news with folks. What I find in my own life is I always revert to the Romans road. When I'm talking to somebody, I'm, 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 I'm usually always talking to them about Romans 3, the wages of sin is death. All is sin and fall short of the glory of God. I talked to him about Romans 6. Uh, or sorry, Romans 6 is the wage of sin is death. Uh, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 3 is all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 5, God demonstrates his love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, Romans 10, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. If anyone calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I mean, if you just know, if you just know John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gives the only begotten Son, who serves to believe in him shall not perish, shall have everlasting life. I mean, if you just know, if you just know some verses, just, just some verses that, that, that help people to understand they're sinners separated from God, they need a Savior, Jesus is the Savior, they can place their faith in him, turn from their sins, and be saved. It's, I mean, it's that simple. And all of us can do that. That's not beyond any of our... Any of our ability to share that simple good news message. We've got to be clear. We've got to be concise. We've got to be compelling. But not only do we need to share the gospel message, we need to be able to share our personal testimony. It's very effective to share with somebody what Jesus did for you. They can argue with you. They can argue what you're saying. But you're just sharing your story. This is what Jesus did for me. And by the way, it's hard to argue with a changed life. Right? And so, learn. I, I tell people they need to be able to share their faith story, their testimony, in three minutes. Because you may be in a situation where you don't have ten minutes, or thirty minutes, or, or something like that. So learn to, to share your faith story in, in, a, in, a, in a concise way. And, and, and your faith story is this. Write this down very quickly. Ready? Your testimony is your life before you met Christ... Not the, not the dirty, dark details, but just the condition of your life before you met Christ, okay? Second, how you met Jesus. Third, the difference Jesus has made. So your life before Christ, how you met Christ, your life after you met Christ. That's how you share personal testimony. It's just that simple. And every one of you in here can uh, do that. Got, um, don't want to embarrass him, but I'm about to. Um, Richard Chrisley's in here. And Richard, raise your hand there. Uh, Richard's in here, and, and Richard and I spent a lot of time together, um, and, and, and Richard just very naturally uh, shares his story of, of how Jesus changed his life, and he was saved later in life, and, and it's just a, a powerful story, and it just, it, just, it's, it just comes naturally. He's just around folks, and, he, and, he's, and I've heard him share his testimony dozens of times, at least, around Brother Richard, in all different types of settings and contexts, and, and it, it, he... Richard reminds me of one of those folks, he's just never gotten over being saved. Right? And maybe that's what we need. We need to get back to that place where we just can't get over that God saved us. We don't deserve it, do we? 
We don't deserve salvation. It's grace, right? It's God's love. We don't deserve it. We deserve hell. And, and, and maybe we've just gotten over the fact that God saved us because we don't ever talk about it. So C stands for, CC stands for clear communication. And then MI stands for maximum impact, which means our lives make a difference. Our lives make a difference. And so I can't read this story in 2 Kings without thinking about my own, my own responsibility to share good news. For me not to share the good news consistently in my life is like the lepers eating food in the Syrian camp and not telling a soul. I can't find much of a difference. Can you? And so back to our original point. Look at the very top of your page. One of the greatest privileges we have is to share the good news. One of the greatest privileges we have is to share the good news. Now, I could go on and on and on talking about some of that stuff. And, and, and to be honest with you, I've got some things I want to share with you about evangelism. And I want to share with those in the coming, the, the coming you know, weeks and months. And so I'm, I'm chewing on some things right now. I think, I won't get into it right now. But i got some things I want to share with you. So we'll get into that one day. Um, I'll say one thing. I don't think we pray enough for lost people. I think, that's, I think that is one of the, the major missing ingredients in the church's evangelistic efforts. And I don't mean just this church. I mean every church. We're not praying specifically, consistently for lost folks. Um, I've read this, uh, been reading a little bit of the biography of, J, uh, of uh, Hudson Taylor. He was uh, the founder of China Inland Mission, 1800s. Uh, established faith missions, just a remarkable man of God, uh, and his impact still being felt in China uh, even today. Um, but the story is told by his son of his conversion, and uh, he was uh, he was about I think he was around nine or ten years old. He was a, a child, and he found out that the day he met Christ, the Lord just intersected his life. He was reading the Bible, and the Lord showed him his need for a Savior. And, and he found out that his mom was away at a conference, and she, had, she had, was burdened for her son, and she spent all day just praying for her son. And then after he found that out, that on the same day she'd been praying for him, he got saved, he found out that his, his sister was praying for him, too, on that same day to get saved. And so I'm just telling you, there may be something to it. All right? Maybe we need to pray specifically. You know, God is, is sovereign. He's in control, and he, he, he knows the end from the beginning. But he has sovereignly decided to work through means. And one of the means God has established is prayer. The Bible's clear that God responds when we pray. So that's one of the ways God achieves, sovereignly achieves his purposes, through the prayers of his people. So maybe we need to pray more for lost people. We'll talk some more about that. I need to do better. And, and we'll talk some more about it.